1: Hi, Tom Kerridge here on the BBC Good Food podcast. This week I'm speaking to my friend Karen Gokhani of Hoppers about his favourite dish, dosa. Growing up in Mumbai, eating home-cooked Indian food, Karen can trace his love of cookery back to a very young age. Despite this fascination with food, Karen initially decided to pursue a career in law, undertaking a law degree in Bombay. And it was during this time at university in India when he first worked in a professional kitchen. But listen, I want to know more. I mean, this is going to be a podcast about your favorite dish, but so much of that, when we talk about it before and with different people, it's always been about the history and heritage and food and culture and that foundation and that heart and soul of what it means. And what do you remember about food, I, I suppose, growing up, you know, eating home-cooked Indian
2: food? So I grew up in Mumbai, which is in India, neither South India nor Sri Lanka, and today I find myself running a restaurant which sort of really showcases those two cuisines. I think I was always really inquisitive about cooking ever since I was a four-year-old. And the reason I say four is because I've now got a four-year-old who is very similar. He's always, you know, running into the kitchen, very inquisitive about what I'm doing in there, loves getting his hands dirty. Um, I think looking back, although I grew up in a Gujarati vegetarian family. One of my greatest influences was our was was one of my granduncles. Uh, we called him Tatun. He was a bachelor his entire life and he was of Tamilian origin. So he came from South India. He sort of lived all over the world, including Burma. He traveled all over the place, but he had this knack for cooking just that came from the heart. You know, there are people who just come in and effortlessly a walk touch, into the kitchen yeah. and just make anything taste special. So there were these evenings when he'd just come home with um with a bag of South Indian, very unique vegetables, which he'd buy from a South Indian supermarket, and um, he'd just come and whip up an incredible meal, and then we'd have three generations, my parents... My brother and I and my grandmother and him sit on the table and he'd just have us in
1: splits. So this was all vegetarian food?
2: Very often all vegetarian. Later on in life, I snuck meat into the house and fish into the house. And, you know, it was only when I came to England uh, about 15 years ago as a university student that um, I started cooking a lot of meat, but grew up with very little meat in the household. So uh,
1: you say you, you came here from university. I mean, y- your first love of food is something that's obviously then developed from being within the family and as connection to, to, to I suppose, um, uh, the food of the area, but also being able to c- connect to each other as a big family and sitting down and eating. But then, you know, your first career choice was going off and and studying to be a lawyer.
2: Absolutely. Uh, So my father's a doctor and so is my brother now. And we always had this thing of, look, do a time-tested profession, but in the end, you can do whatever you like. So at that stage, I just chose the easiest, as in not the easiest, but probably the most, the the profession that gave me uh, the most flexibility later. So... You know how it is in an Indian household growing up then in the 90s. It was you know, an engineer, architect, doctor or lawyer. And I chose law. So I first studied law in Bombay for a few years and then eventually managed to get a, a place at the University of Cambridge. So I went to Wolfson College and did a second degree there. At that point, it was very much, look, I will do law. I will take it to its...
1: Were you specializing ultimate. in any particular area?
2: At that stage, no, it was an undergraduate degree. But I did have um, areas that I was interested in. You know, the funny thing is, I would spend all my weekends in my dorm room, in in our dorms, cooking in the kitchen. I'd make a complete mess by Monday morning and the cleaner would come in and clean. But I would always have food for her. So she liked me quite a lot. Some of the other guys, we were a group of eight of us in that dorm room. I'd taken all their fridge space. So I'd negotiated with them and said, listen, you'll be fed well in the week if you give me your shelves in the fridge. That'd be I'd be cooking from morning to evening for a dinner party on a Saturday, and these guys would come in. Someone, there's this German guy who'd have his breakfast, then he'd come in and have his lunch, go play football, and come and have you know cold cuts for dinner at about five o'clock in the evening. And he's like, "You've been in the kitchen ever since I've had my breakfast." I was like, "Yeah, I'm prepping for a dinner party," um, but that's you know, it was so fascinating when I came here. Was I that? Saw, did
1: you think at that point you would go? Actually, this is what I want to do. What am I? What am I doing here at Cambridge studying law? I want to be a chef.
2: It was a decent backup degree to have done, right? <laughs> yeah, not bad, huh?
1: not bad, yeah.
2: But I think my, my heart was always, you know, looking at looking at people like yourself. And, and I just loved the industry. I was so passionate about food. I remember la- in later years when I worked in the city at a law firm, one of the Magic Circle law firms, I managed to take holidays and managed to f- wriggle my way out of deals and, and find weekends when I could go in and stage in, in, in some of the bigger Indian kitchens. And there were some chefs who welcomed me with open arms. I guess at that stage, they thought, this guy's a lawyer. There's very little threat. Just let him come into my kitchen and and and, and work with me. They were great. Um, I chopped onions with, with, with line-level chefs on the weekends just to see what it felt like. Because again, I was fairly risk averse. I was like, I don't want to throw my career up with this dream of just going in there, opening a, a restaurant and not knowing what it takes to run one.
1: So what was the point then? What was the tipping point, the thing that suddenly made you go, actually, I've got the degree in law, I, I can do but what I want to do is actually be a restaurateur and a chef and operate in this world of hospitality.
2: I think the way the law degree worked was um, you get into university, you reach a culmination, and you then have the next step where, okay, let me get a training contract. You then get a training contract, and then you're in this firm and you say, okay, let me find the right department. You get into the department you're like, okay, let me qualify and let me work on the best deals. And I think when I ticked all those boxes off, I realized that none of them gave me that satisfaction. And I met a lot of lawyers who weren't satisfied, but then the lifestyle kind of got them hooked to it. Whereas with me, money wasn't a criteria, nothing else was. And I had this burning desire to now, when I look back, feed people, and cook so it wasn't just cooking and getting into the kitchen to be a chef and that's something I realised in those stages there was something deeper it was, it was creativity it was creating that whole experience and today when I look back that's what I do at the restaurants becoming so. a restaurateur it wasn't just so. about yeah.
1: cooking yeah. and being self-focused about the food that you're developing yes. you already had the idea of a bigger picture you were already because a lot of chefs myself included went into the kitchen we were cooking As I'm a cook I'm a chef that's what I'm doing I never envisaged ever owning a restaurant or owning a space or cooking creating environments I was just learning to cook but you were already thinking of the bigger picture how am I going to create this space what am I going to do how am I going to get to that point so uh, you left you you left university you left with you went to work in the city you were working as a lawyer how did you then jump into owning a restaurant what was what was the step was there somebody that helped you what was the who is the person that influenced and, and guided you along the way
2: so the first, so when I finally reached that stage where I said, look, I need to get out here and just explore the world of restaurants, uh, you know, you make it <laughs> sound like I had that very clear vision then, which I absolutely did not. You know, there were so many different avenues to, to someone in the restaurant world, whether it's the marketing, branding side or the cooking or, or the service. And at this stage, yes, in my head, I was like, I want to do food. I want to do something to do with restaurants. What do I do next? There was a great break I got in Delhi in India with a with a fantastic restaurant there he's got the whole collection of different restaurants from fine dining to the more sort of casual fast food my heart lay in that casual segment because I thought it's, you know, seeing scale for one is exciting. But at the same time, um, you know, I wanted to be egalitarian. I wanted to to create something which invited people from all kinds of walks of life and gave them this amazing experience. So when I did that, I found very quickly that I was, you know, somehow the other got tangled up in more of the commercial side of things, which was fun, uh, which taught me a lot. But then I looked back and I said, actually, I want to do the creative side. And, um, And I was dating my now wife, long distance. She's the S in the JKS restaurants. And at that stage, it was smaller. I spoke to my brother-in-law, the J, Jotin, and we got chatting and he said, look, the idea is to grow and to do more restaurants. Why don't you come back, join the family? If you, you know, once you guys are married, you need to decide where you're staying. I had lived in London for a long time then and was very happy to move back. So made the shift back at that stage, not knowing where I'm going to get involved knew that, you know, it's family business. You need to make sure you have your boundaries. Yeah. um, uh, Which is the only sensible way of doing it. But they were so gracious. I got chatting to Karam, the K in the JKS, at my wedding with Sunaina. So we went, we got married in Kerala. We got chatting over some food as usual. And at that stage, he said, look, you know, I've been wanting to do a Sri Lankan casual restaurant. I said, I've always wanted to do something South Indian. And casual has always been the segment where, you know, I tend to dine out at and I tend to be most excited about. So that's, I think, where the first, I you know, where the idea really took shape, at least in my head, um and then we got researching. We started chatting about it a lot more. We traveled to Sri Lanka. And before we knew it, we had this tiny site on Fritz Street, which was Koya earlier, a great restaurant. They're now next door to us. Um, we designed the site. And I loved that whole process of designing it. I eventually found that I was spending a lot of my time front of house, something I never imagined before, but only then came to realize how important a role that you know the front of house and the the, the service team plays. And lo and behold, you know, that was the beginning of hoppers and the rest is history, really.
1: But how much of that is influenced by your dishes, understanding to cook, learning from home? How many of those home-cooked recipes exist in hoppers? Because, like you say, hoppers is a Sri Lankan Mm -hmm. and southern Indian-based kind of cuisine. But are any of those dishes from from childhood memories, do they make an appearance?
2: So I think um, a lot of the dishes, at least the South Indian dishes, on the menu were our variations of what I grew up eating at home that were cooked by Tathun. Things like the dosa and the idli are two of, you know, my favorite dishes. These are dishes you grew up eating anywhere in India today, but particularly if you're in the south or in Mumbai, uh, they've just become so popular that they are all-day dishes. When I was growing up, you could only get it, especially if you were traveling down south uh, in India, you'd only get a dosa in the morning. It was breakfast food. But now it's so popular, you can get it anywhere in the country at any time of day or night. So the dosa particularly was a dish we grew up eating. But then there's the whole selection of Sri Lankan dishes on our menu, which I first got introduced to at university when I stayed with a group of my Sri Lankan friends. Um, they're Parents would often come and cook for us in London, and I was fascinated at how similar yet different this cuisine was to food that I'd grown up eating. That then encouraged me to go to Sri Lanka on holiday, and I remember my first holiday. I was there for about two weeks in summer, staying at a friend's house. We had planned this amazing tour all around the country, but ended up not leaving Colombo, being in our house, cooking with her mom every single day. We'd wake up in the morning. Her mom would take me to the... Um, to the farmers, into the local markets, the, the fish markets, um, and the vegetable markets, and we'd buy all our produce there, come back, be fascinated by what she's cooked. And that's all we ended up doing for two weeks. And I knew then that there's just something about this cuisine, and, and more importantly, the people that I just loved.
0: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear
1: So that culture that you're talking about there, that heartfelt home um, uh, style dishes, but there's much more to it that, that runs deeper than just the dishes cooked at home. The the sense of going to the market the, the from the beginning, the connection to suppliers, the, the connection mm-hmm. to the people that you're talking to. There's all those human elements that come across. Do you think that is something that you've then found important into creating your restaurant world?
2: Yeah, so... I always look at the the front of house space as a bit of a scrapbook, as a bit of a, uh, I treat it like home. So if you see all our restaurants have these lovely masks and textiles and stuff on the walls, uh, and we try to go to source. So most of those masks have been handpicked by, by me or a very close member of our team. When we are traveling over there, we get it commissioned for us. We bring them back often in our handbags. The textiles are done by a lady who has a group of ladies who works for her, and she supports these these organizations down south in Sri Lanka, and we only use her to do stuff. Similarly, in the kitchen, when we first opened the restaurant, we had to go and find the right suppliers who could get us these ingredients in. Certain ingredients we brought directly from Sri Lanka. We've got Arak, a coconut spirit, um, and and a gin from Colombo both supplied by Rockland a phenomenal distillery and now you know some of my closest the, the owner is one of my closest friends um, we use Kithul from Kimbola, which is a phenomenal. So it's almost like a maple syrup uh, syrup alternative from Sri Lanka. And there's a girl called Chanchu who makes that. It is the finest you can get. So where we can, we is get that pr-
1: done the same way. Is that is that sap from trees? Sap from, from a down. tree, oh, really?
2: And it's reduced down in a little earthen pot. So it's all it gets this smokiness because it's cooked on wood. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get you a bottle.
1: That sounds You've amazing. got to try it.
2: It's phenomenal, low GI, really healthy, but uh, tastes like nothing else. So I have it with with, you know, um, pancakes on the weekend or we put it in our cocktails or desserts.
1: Oh, that sounds incredible. Really, really I love really that. Tasty. So uh, th- th- those kind of finding those dishes, those th- th- and products, the authenticity is something that's incredibly important. But then you've put it into this huge, multicultural, incredible city of London mm-hmm. and then tried to create an environment and a sense of home. But then when you talk about the dishes that you love and how they transpire and transcend into getting it across to to mere mortals coming in who I've never been to Sri Lanka. So how close to those dishes are they?
2: I think the Sri Lankan dishes, take the black pork curry, for example, or the hopper. These are dishes that are purely Sri Lankan. The hopper, it comes from the word appam or appa. Uh It's a South Indian rice pancake, fermented rice and coconut pancake. So you have a version in Kerala, which is a lot softer and flatter, but we've chosen to go with the Sri Lankan version. And that took a lot of Understanding, learning, and making tons of mistakes in the beginning when we opened, we'd have our hopper pans suddenly all the hoppers stick to the pans. We had to go and reseason them. We've got a whole restaurant of forty people who ordered hoppers because we've chosen to put hoppers in our name. Yeah, and suddenly you have to go out to them and say, "Listen, can you please switch to a dosa instead of a hopper because we're having trouble getting these out?" Yeah. Um, and and that was the reality. So we learned the the hard way, but we made sure that the hopper was authentic to Sri Lankan food, the black pork curry a dish that I tried in Sri Lanka for the first time was so unique from any South Indian dish. You know, when I'd had fish curries and prawn curries, there was a similarity. There's a similarity with a slightly different influence, but this dish was something I ate and I was completely blown away. And I said, look, this for me represents Sri Lanka. Now I'm going to spend the next, best part of this next trip trying to reverse engineer it. And it took many, many attempts And then we finally got it right. And we've had it in the menu ever since. So to answer your question, the Sri Lankan dishes are very authentically Sri Lankan. Often I have taken the team out and gone and deep dived and researched these dishes from Sri Lanka and tried to represent them here. But on the South Indian side, we've got a whole army of South Indian chefs who often cook what their families cooked bring in a lot of their authenticity. I'm there to do a little bit of the fine tuning, but you allow them to express themselves. Sometimes you have this vision. It's a bit like, you know, I sometimes I question myself and ask, what am I doing? It's a bit like a movie where you've got a great actor, you've got a great team of actors, but if you just let them do what they're doing, it might not turn into the tightest film possible. So I'm there with a bit of a vision. You have to make sure it's a shared vision, but still, and you, you want to bring out the best in all these actors, but kind of get them to work towards the script. Okay, and so, that's what we do as restaurateurs, I
1: guess. So you're building it. it feels like, So if I, so anyone who comes from Sri Lanka, or me and him, or we go for dinner, where they sit there, they're going to feel that this is authentic, true and honest.
2: I hope so, Tom, because we've put a lot of effort in to making sure that anything that is Sri Lankan is Sri Lankan. But, you know, people think we're only Sri Lankan. And I guess that's the little ace up our sleeve. We've got tons of beautiful South Indian Many dishes. Many
1: different dishes that are amazing. And one of them has to be the dosa, which, funnily enough, is your favorite dish, it's the one that you've chosen. So talk us through a dosa. What is it? And why is it so special to you?
2: So I think I've already mentioned a little bit, but dosa is just this dish that we grew up eating. Now, for those of you who don't know what a dosa is, just imagine this beautiful, crispy crepe made from fermented lentils and rice. So you you soak urad dal and chana dal along with short grain rice. Overnight, then you... Once it's softened a little bit, you drain the water, you grind it all down and you make this silky batter, which is then spread very, very thinly on a hot plate.
1: So basically the lentils and the rice are soaked in water. You you drain it and then you, you grind drain. it, so they're not cooked at all. They're so not the lentils, cooked at all. So they've softened just mm-hmm. by being sat in water. Exactly. Do you keep the water for anything? That starchy water. Can
2: you use it for anything, or do you, you can water plants with it? Okay, so you
1: water, <laughs> you water the plants with it, and then so the the lentils and the rice they get ground into a, a, yeah. a, a into a batter. Into now a what, little bit. Yeah. So what's the liquid that goes into that to make it the batter, or is it just the fact that they've still they've worked like a sponge? They've got that that liquid in Absolutely. it.
2: Absolutely, and you can add a little more water. There's okay. also, there's one more very important ingredient, fenugreek seeds. Right. Uh, it's quite, they're quite bitter. I don't know if you ever use them, Tom, but they're quite bitter.
1: I know them. I don't use them. I, I, it's I, a very le- distinct taste. I leave that to the experts. Yeah. When it comes to spicing and seasonings, I go, I, you know, <laughs> salt salt and pepper and butter. That's there's some that's salt like, in here as well. Yeah, that, that that's my realm. Yeah. When it comes to authentic seasoning <laughs> and spicing, I'll leave that to you. So, okay, so you've created this beautiful batter mix. Yeah.
2: And then you imagine spreading it it's all often done with the back of a bowl. So imagine you pick up a little bit of that batter from a bowl. Now, that batter is like a thick pancake batter. It's a little gritty because of the lentils and not being cooked. So it isn't a very, very smooth batter. It's slightly gritty, which just may helps you to stick to the hot plate. You've got a really well-seasoned hot plate, no oil, nothing on it at present. You empty this bowl. It sizzles beautifully. And then you use the bottom of the bowl, just the weight of that bowl, to swirl it round which gives you these concentric circles, this lovely, lovely pancake that uh, just sticks to the pan. Then you almost reverse fry it. You you drizzle your butter or ghee or gingerly oil, which is an untoasted sesame oil, which is very common in South India, on top. So imagine instead of frying it the other way so around, you've got
1: you put it, the oil one on top. side down that you've spread into a like it. They're beautiful when you it's see like them a in crepe. closer, like it. But like a crepe, they're normally like one batter that's just yes. all that. The, the dosa is like a swirl that's exactly. tight that's gone round and round and round and round and round
2: with the bottom of that bowl. Yeah,
1: and then when you cook it, the, the beautiful thing about the dosa is when you pull it apart that it cooks and it cooks in that crisp kind of way where it has that swirl it's got this kind of like yes. tight chewiness to it. Yes, almost like it's almost like this. Fry- Fried inside of a croissant is the best way I could kind of think about it. Like a laminated dough. Great way of... You know, it's kind of like spread around like that. And then and then you drizzle the uncooked side with a fat or an oil. The uncooked
2: side with a fatter oil.
1: And then you flip over.
2: You don't flip it over. Okay. And you just roll it off. All so right. it's so thin, you don't need to flip it over. Um, and then you could have different versions of it. So the Sri Lankan version, the dosai... Uh, comes from the same dish, is a, is always a little softer. Think uh, a pancake, but still thinner than your traditional pancakes. And that's just folded up and that's soft and that's eaten with chutneys and sambars and sometimes curries. Then you've got the South Indian version. So our the dosa at Hoppers is a very South Indian dosa. Do you put anything in it? What do you then add? So you could do various things. So you could just roll it off. You could have a butter dosa, which is delicious, great for kids. Um, you could add a little bit of a spice mix or a podi. So that's made with ground, toasted and ground sesame seeds, lentils, and chili. And it's lovely. It just gives this nuttiness to the dosa. Or you could have a potato masala inside and stuff it. So very often a masala dosa is usually just tempered potatoes. So boiled potatoes cooked with onions, uh, uh, mustard seeds, fenugreek seeds, and a little bit of turmeric, and not much more. Um, and that's stuffed in the middle. And that's a meal in itself. My favorite version is a cheese dosa or a chili cheese dosa. So, oh, oh, so you get that oh, spice body. You get some. You get a mix of cheddar and mozzarella. So that melts really well, but you've got Hold that on a, a nice age. cheddar <laughs> and
1: mozzarella. That, there's there's nothing Sri Lankan about that.
2: No, there isn't. But in India, we grew up with something called Amul cheese, which any Indian person listening to this will go crazy about. It was this processed cheese that just really salty, really tasty. The closest I could find to it here was a cheddar mozzarella okay. mix. So yeah. you get the, the mix of that really nice stretchiness, so it's
1: stringy and melted, but at the beautiful. same
2: time you've got that nice aged cheddar. Yeah, and then green, freshly chopped green chilies, which just See, works incredible. so well with cheese. And then roll that over. Now, that for me is my ideal snack. I need nothing else with it but some tomato chutney or a coconut chutney on the side just to dip into. I don't think I've ever been able to walk past the dosa griddle in the restaurant and not ask for a little one of those.
1: And that dish that you talk about there, you, you said the history and everybody would know back in India, the cheese that was used. Is that something, when you first had a dosa, is that, did it, did it bring back all of those memories? So
2: growing up, Dosa came from South India, Tamil Nadu, and then you have a version in Kerala as well, but predominantly Tamil Nadu where, you know, people have heard of Chennai. Chennai is the capital city of that state. And you'd get tons of dosa there. You'd get in Karnataka and Bangalore and those regions. And I remember as a child, every Sunday and most houses, even now, Sunday brunch is usually idli dosa. So idli is a fluffy rice cake made with a similar batter, but there's more lentils. So there's... Two parts rice to one part lentils, whereas dosa is usually four parts rice to one part lentil. So very similar batter, made in a very similar way. The what's difference the in
1: difference? Is, it, what's, what's it, is there a difference in texture? Is there a difference in structure? Is there a difference in flavor?
2: Completely different things. Flavor is slightly similar. But an idli is um, is almost like, imagine uh, you've got these indented trays with little sort of cups in them, with holes, perforated cups. You then put a little bit of this batter, thicker batter, in them and you'd steam them. So they're like steamed rice cakes, like the texture of crumpets. Okay, yeah, you know, uh, lovely. Quite stodgy, but still quite airy. They should just break apart and melt in your mouth. And okay. they're lovely, really soft and lovely. And then again, those you dip those into sambar or into chutneys. So, but typically they're just eaten as breakfast food or brunch food on the weekends. You'd have steamed idlis, you'd have dosas, you'd have the masalas or masala on the side, so anyone can stick them into the dosa. You'd have all these chutneys, and that would be lunch. Even now, when I go back to Bombay, very often on a Sunday you just do that. But the version Sunday lunch, Sunday brunch with the family. But the version you'd have at home would often be very different from the restaurant version. And you'd go to a restaurant and the way they'd be able to pull off the golden crispy dosas, I guess because of the commercial hot plates, the way they make their batters was always quite different. So even though you ate that on Sundays for lunch, there'd always be this novelty about going to a South Indian restaurant and eating a good dosa.
1: Because it was always that skill set of a chef. It doesn't matter, does it? I mean, whether you're in India, whether you're in the UK, whether you're in France, Italy, Germany, Spain, like there, there's home cooking and then there's the way that the professionals do it. You've got better you, you,
2: bits of kit, haven't you? You start? know the secret, Tom. It's always more butter, more oil. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. More butter, more oil. It makes everything taste better. At
2: home, you, you use a little teaspoon. You're like, oh, that's enough oil. There's too much oil. And you send it back. Whereas over there, it's laden with butter. So
1: there's no real tradition to doses apart from their breakfast. It's not a celebratory food. It's one of those things that it's, every a, day. It's, it's for every occasion. Mm-hmm. You can have it everywhere. Would you have it on at weddings? Would you have it on at um, celebratory things? Or is Is it just like an everyday food?
2: So in South India, it's called tiffin. So it's like your breakfast food and you'd you'd have a guy. I remember when we were in Bangalore, we'd go as kids. uh, And in the morning, you'd have this guy come on a cycle and he's got a contraption on the back of his bike, which is a steamer. It works with charcoal. So he's got idlis freshly steaming in there and he'll give it to you in a little... Banana leaf or a palm leaf. So will give you two at Chuck the chutney on top, put some sambar on top, and give it to you and cycle off. Amazing. And it was incredible. That's so like it the was best breakfast chippy food. van or the best food.
1: ice cream van ever. Like on that, the back of a bike. Right? Yeah, brilliant. Like
2: imagine a coal fired fryer at the back. <laughs> yeah, perfect. perfect. <laughs> not 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 great for health and safety, but no.
1: Um, what about? Leftovers, if you're making a load of doses and you're doing, you know, you're doing it for a lot of people coming, you're not necessarily cooking them to order, you'll do 10, 20, however many people are coming. What happens if you've got any leftovers? Can you do anything with them?
2: You could do idlis with them, but I find dosas, the dosa batter is slightly different from the idli batter. You could go idli batter to make a dosa, but the reverse doesn't always work as well. But the best thing to do is freeze it. So we've always got a tub or two of frozen dosa batter, because you know, you might wake up on a Sunday morning and realize. God, I want a dosa right now, and it happens very, very often. Or the kids will ask for it, and you just defrost quickly. It comes to temperature quickly. Make a dosa. You'd have some chutney that's frozen too, or make a quick chutney, or just have it on its own with with cheese. Yeah, and that's where the chili cheese dosa came from. So it's not very authentic, but I guess growing up as kids, we just wanted dosa, and there wasn't chutney ready, so we'd get the cook would just start grating cheese, cheese something
1: done. Perfect. What about misconceptions or myths surrounding dosas? Is there anything that uh, people normally assume or associate with? Is there anything that completely changes that?
2: I think it's funny because sometimes, um, again, given our reputation as a Sri Lankan restaurant, we've had Sri Lankans come into the restaurant and say, this is not a tosai. But actually, they're slightly different things. So uh, it's not a misconception uh, strictly, but um, a tosai is, like I mentioned earlier, it's a slightly thicker, softer pancake. Whereas Dosas are crisper, and we go the South Indian route, and we do the traditional South Indian style dosa. So often, you've got to educate the the you know guests about that. Same way as a hopper is more Sri Lankan than the South Indian. It version.
1: sounds like what you've got and what you've created is actually a culmination and a mix of everything that's authentic and real but not necessarily in its authentic and real environment. So you've got the real dishes, you've got the real flavours, you've got the heart and the soul. But if people are expecting it to just be like one variation, it's not, it's an eclectic mix, it's a new mix. It's a London-based restaurant team of people that are creating fantastic food that's heartfelt, that's relatable to you.
2: It's basically food we wanted to eat, Tom. We wanted to to eat in an environment we wanted to eat. We've done it up like we do up our home. Uh, with all the little touches in there, with the knickknacks we've picked up from our travels across South India and particularly Sri Lanka. And um, that's just what the restaurants turned out to be. And each one is a little variation of itself. I always say the three restaurants are like siblings in a family. So you'd see the common DNA through them. The menus are about 70% the same, but they don't look identical. And you don't want them to. You want them to react to the neighborhood. You want them to react to the team that's looking after them.
1: Yeah. you want. And them they to want be them free. to have their own personality. Exactly. Yeah. And let them grow. Exactly. Okay. So- Time for some quick fire questions. Are you ready? I want to know. I'm nervous. Obviously, apart from your own, which is your most well thumbed cookery book?
2: That's a tricky question. I love the science of cooking. And I guess it's that geekiness of being a lawyer. So for me, Harold McGee on food and cooking uh, uh, and Kenji Lopez in the States. I love, he's got serious eats. I mean, he's been, he used to be behind serious eats. And I think two of those books are my favorite. I love getting into the technique and understanding the why as opposed to just following a That's recipe. next
1: level. That's, that's next level understanding. That's not just like looking at pretty pictures of food and going, I want to recreate that as a dish. Yeah. That's the understanding of the process. That That is somebody who's read law at Cambridge. That is. <laughs> that, 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 I read no, them to bed. No, nobody else would pick that.
2: <laughs> what about music? Do you listen to music whilst you cook? I love listening to music. I've got one of the smart speakers in the kitchen where you can talk to. And I think I find it so useful because if you're in the middle of chopping a chicken up, and you have to change the track on your phone. It's no good. So I got this years and years ago. For me, the music should represent often represents the mood I'm getting into. So if I'm having a dinner party in Italian, there'll be Andrea Bocelli in the background, Pavarotti. I love that kind of music. It's great to unwind too. Uh, If I'm doing Indian, very often there's the latest Bollywood tracks in there. My wife often comes and turns the volume down. (laughs) Uh, The one thing I can't handle is nursery rhymes. You've got a four-year-old and a -a one-and-a-half-year-old. So now I've got them listening to Coldplay instead of me going the other way around. Perfect.
1: Sounds Um, Yeah, it sounds much better. sounds much better. Now, I'm Asking a man who's chosen dosa as his um, as his favourite dish, but what about cheap eats? Places where you'd like to go and eat something on a, a, a quick, cheap restaurant, a pub, or market food? Where do you go? Where do you go and eat?
2: I think most of the time I go and eat cheap eats. Often they don't disappoint you. you don't go in where where where, go? where where do you go? Where I've always always loved Chinatown in London. So it's right next to where where we opened our first restaurant. I remember going there every day after we had our last guest and before our KP left, our kitchen porter left at about three o'clock in the morning. So we'd have three hours to kill, we'd go and eat tons of duck and I still do that. I love going alone, I love going with friends. There's four seasons for the roast duck, which is fantastic. There are two or three of them. There's one I particularly go to. There's rasa Sang for amazing Malaysian food. There's Jen's Cafe, which I'm heartbroken shut down very recently. But you had these ladies making handmade dumplings and chucking them across the room, which was so much fun. And then there's some really nice little spots for noodles as well as uh, Sichuan food. What have you always got in your fridge? Something that's always my fridge. I'll talk about my freezer. Okay. The dosa batter is always in my freezer. Dosa batter is always and in freezer. And alongside that, there's always pizza dough balls. I love pizza. I cook tons of pizza at home.
1: So you, do you make the dough balls and then freeze them I have it then? to make the dough balls. Okay.
2: I, I learned about freezing them only recently. First, I'd work back three days and it would always be a bigger, slow starter. Um, but then I realized that you could actually freeze them. And as long as you thaw them properly... Uh, in the vacuum bags or in Ziploc bags. They thaw really well and they're really effective. So they still puff up really well. Amazing. So you keep stuff in the freezer. I love that. Okay. Foodie
1: confessions, what's your biggest cooking disaster?
2: It's usually got something to do with baking, Tom. I I hate, I I, I don't want to say I hate it. I love the the outcome, but the process, I find it very hard to stick to a recipe often. And I think I've made some of my biggest boo-boos. Baking. Yeah, when it comes it to baking, it's different. very,
1: very different, isn't it? When you, when you, when you're a cook and you feel that you're following your natural instinct and your mm. talent, and you can touch and feel. And uh, when it comes to baking, it's much more about that science process, the understanding, and then things being correct. And you're always using raw ingredients. You're not you're not tasting as you go along. I think that's which is one big of the thing. things that come with with hot kitchen cooking so yeah. you can taste as you go along so you can add you can, and you, you adjust. can go exactly. well how do you make this work with baking you don't know what it tastes like until you got the finished product and that's but it
2: my trick there is I never name the dish so if I've got guests coming over and I've baked something I'll never tell them what the dessert is until I serve it because I can always make something up I love it so a cake could become a mess I'm, I could add ice cream in it could become a sundae yeah. if it hasn't come out of the pan properly I so love that's it. my little trick I'm cooking. definitely okay. going to steal that idea <laughs> what
1: about food that you've never tried or anywhere that you'd like to go and try food?
2: I guess there's so many cuisines that that you know I'd love to try. And that's what I love about London. There's there's so many regions where I just don't understand. Like Korean food is something I want to get into. Yeah. I, I love Asian food. I absolutely love Asian food, but I've eaten very little Korean food. In terms of a particular dish, I think brain is something I always avoid. I I I've never eaten. Never may, eaten. may have eaten by mistake once, but it's something that I just can't get myself to eat. I eat everything from duck tongue to to chicken feet but brain is something I've always stayed clear of
1: it's a little underwhelming I've got to be very... really yeah okay. it's good right. I'm glad it's, I'm not missing out it's alright like, yeah <laughs> it's, like it's alright like, it's not a piece of sea bass though is it I mean let's be honest what about <laughs> a guilty pleasure what What do you have that uh, you, you think oh my god I hope no one sees me eating this
2: Ben and Jerry's middle of the night on the couch watching telly
1: any particular flavour Chocolate fudge brownie. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and
2: it's usually the tub. So I'd, I'd always start off with, okay, I can eat only a third of the tub and I need to ration it. But then very often you just had this crazy day. It's like, I can afford to do it. Yeah, I just yeah, eat that And you tub.
1: just live with the guilt afterwards. Last question. What makes you feel optimistic about the
2: future? I guess don't, that's all we have, right? We've got to feel optimistic. And it's a business. I mean, over the last three years... Every business in the world has has been thrown a number of curveballs. I think the hospitality industry, in particular in the u k, has had one after the other. We're in the middle of a perfect storm. And at the end of the day, if you want to keep smiling and serving, guests and looking after them and you know not forgetting what you love about it It's that's all we really have
1: Okay Karen, thank you ever so much. it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today and honestly I can't wait to hear the recipe for the dosa and everybody else, thank you so much for listening, please don't forget you can listen to the bonus cook-along recipe and for more details please see bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks ever so much, we'll see you next time, bye!